my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, so what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there, and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. So uh, my guest here is Francis Pedrasa, and he's the CEO of Invisible Technologies, um, a company that's helping companies to automate repetitive work so that they can focus more on creative work. Can you tell people a little bit more about how that works? Sure. So we give you a bot. You can name your bot whatever you want, Superman, Wonder Woman. And behind the scenes, we have workers all around the world um, who... Uh, you start paying at $15 an hour and they can log into your accounts and do the work that you would otherwise delegate to an assistant. Oh, that's great. And what is the difference between creative work and um, repetitive work? Yeah, so repetitive work is instruction-based. You can, uh, we, we build processes. Um, and once you train an agent to do a process, they can do it over and over again. It'll have the exact same results. Um, creative work is the stuff that you can't delegate to your bot, like, um, uh, designing a product or coming up with your strategy for this quarter for your company uh, or solving a, a tricky business problem um, or resolving a dispute between two of your team members like these are these are creative strategic um, uh, uh, um, tasks and one of the things that makes them um, hard to delegate is that they're fuzzy by nature um, so so the more advanced um, thinking gets, the fuzzier it becomes, uh, and that's like an interesting, an interesting difference. So, so easy to delegate stuff is highly concrete. It's very easy to break down. Very easy to turn into instructions. There's clear logic. Um, there's you can you know our processes have a process architecture with clear Legos like uh, loops and conditionals. Um, so it's a decision tree. Um, and uh, and creative work, you can't do any of that. Um, you're literally you're figuring it out as you go along, and uh, it's very hard to actually explain what's going on in your mental process, um, or right. certain certainly turn it into something that like many other people could follow with the same results. So in this creative work, I've noticed in my own life when I'm doing creative work, there's this kind of essentially a birthing process, which is really really uncomfortable, and it's because it's so like it's so amorphous and. Can you talk more about that? Do you do you agree with that? Yes. Um, so I wrote a blog post on finding leverage, and I talked about how there's two different archetypes, the seeker and the warrior. Um, so when you, um, when you have a clear goal and you know how, how, you, how to get from point A to point B, uh, the major thing to do is to be like relentless and execute like crazy. Um, so the more energy you put into it, the better your outcomes will be. And you can think of this almost like, um, you know, in the Olympics, you have a race, like the, the sprint, you know, the 100-yard dash. Everyone's got the same goal. It's very clear how to get to that goal. You run. And so the person who runs the hardest gets the goal, gets the goal the fastest and wins. Um, but the seeker um, 
is like someone who's trying to find a source of value in the first place. So, mm. um, so, mm. so, so basically, I, I've I've modeled my own uh, work like a staircase, um, uh, like a step function. So basically, I'll go through a long plateau where I feel like I'm wandering. I'm in the desert. I'm in a labyrinth. Uh, mm. I don't know. Um, I don't know uh, what to do. I'm looking for a new way to create value. And then I will find a way to create value, almost like finding an oil well, right? And it's like, oh my gosh, we've got it. And then I will, then I'll, tur I'll go from seeker mode to warrior mode. I'll go as aggressively as I can and execute on it. And, and I'll, then I'll try to find other warriors to take over. And then they take over and they exploit that oil well. <laughs> um, I'm mixing metaphors very, very badly here, but you get the idea. Yeah. And then I'll move back into seeker mode uh, and I'll just like go out and look for another oil well or look for another opportunity to deploy warriors. And then I'll find one and I'll go into warrior mode again and I'll, I'll, I'll move back into seeker mode. So I spend a lot of my time in this ambiguous realm mm -hmm. uh, where, where goals don't exist. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and you're basically looking for goals. You're looking for scoped work. You're looking for um, uh, problems that that you can solve that create leverage. Um, and uh, and and after you after you identify the problem, identify this. You, you scope the solution. You identify the solution, and you you deploy people to it. You you get the leverage gain, and uh, and other people take over, and then you you go back into the space where you're just looking for more problems. Mm -hmm. um, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Um, and what is what role does stress play in this process? You talked about it a little bit, but for you personally, how do you kind of deal with or even just kind of work with the stress? What is your view on stress? What is your definition on stress? Yeah, it's it's emotionally very difficult to be to, to, to exist in ambiguity. Um, I wake up every morning and I don't know what my job is. Um, and um, I, I wrote another blog post called uh, "Remember the Difference Between Job One and Job Two. You know, there's uh, uh, the blog post is from your from your job to your real job. So, job one is what you think is your job. So, so for me as the CEO, like job one is pretty straightforward. It's like uh, every month I write my investor updates. I have to I have to raise money for the company whenever you know to make sure we don't run out and make sure we have enough to to do everything we need to do. Um, uh, I have to uh, do a weekly management meeting. Um, I have to answer my emails. You know, there's like all the box, all the boxes you have to check, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then there's um, job two, which is my real job, which is to make sure the company succeeds. Mm -hmm. And that's that's unscoped. So most people don't even like to think about job two mm -hmm. because job it's so two, successful. it's so broad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very dangerous to confuse job one with job two. So if I look at my calendar and 80% of my calendar is blocked off already, um, there's barely any time for job two. Um, and job one is basically taken over. And the, pro the, the danger with that is that like, you know, if, if you're in warrior mode, that's okay. Because you, you have very, you just need to execute. So most of your time should be taken up by just moving as fast as possible in that direction. Um, but, uh, you know, really the CEO should not be in warrior mode. They should be in seeker mode most of the time. So um, it should probably look the other way. Uh, I actually talked to a public company CEO, the CEO of Zwara. Um, I forget his name right now. Uh, but he was saying, yeah, like 
20% of his job only takes 20%, his job one only takes Mm -hmm. 20% of his time, 80% of his time he leaves for job two. And that's been repeated by other people like Warren Buffett talks about how he leaves his calendar full of blank space. Um, And Mark Mark Andreessen. Mark Andreessen. Yeah, he just he most of his days are unscheduled and he only does meetings like in on the fly, like right now. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's hard to actually implement this. So um, I do uh, on Google Calendar, I have my 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 calendar and then I have another calendar called uh, Calendar Chess. And on that calendar, I will so say if my calendar has a bunch of white space. I will in my calendar chess calendar, I will like think of projects and start to block off time for them. Um, mm-hmm. so like, okay, if I spend uh, three hours on a Monday on LinkedIn looking for a COO and that's probably not enough time, I need to pro- probably block up another three hours on a Tuesday and then on the Wednesday and then maybe that's nine hours is enough and then that'll generate enough leads. I'll, I'll think about the work that needs to get done um, in the almost like Legos and like mm-hmm. these chunks of time. Um, and I'll try to come up with as many projects as I can think of, like delegating to myself effectively. Uh, and then I will try to rearrange them in time so that I see where I'm going to end up. If, if I did, the, if this was my calendar, this is where I would end up in a month. Um, and uh, with a pretty fair estimate. I, I try to be very generous with the amount of time everything takes because things tend to take longer than you expect. Yeah. Um, and then... Uh, sometimes if I decide to actually execute on this project, I'll merge them back into my actual calendar. Um, Mm. It's a very, Mm. very useful way of thinking about time. Mm. Um, If you're actually just staring at a blank calendar, I'm hearing an echo. Um, If you're actually just staring at a blank calendar, it's very hard to do anything with that. It's like, what do I do right now? Mm. Um, So you have to, you have to get in the habit of delegating to yourself, uh, which is very weird. Um, and um, coming up with something to do. Um, another useful tactic is, um, you know, to especially when you feel like your job one is swallowing your job two, is to c- write down the one most important thing for you to do that day. So right now, for me, that's calling clients. Um, and if I don't call clients that day, I didn't make progress on the thing I care most about. Um, and everything else is is stuff that has sort of gets filled in but if i if i get that main thing right then everything else will fill in around it and so the reason why i love your company and what you're doing is essentially you've you're automating repetitive work repetitive work is is the most draining for for creative people i would say is this kind of like mindless just over and over and over doing these repetitive tasks and then you guys yourselves use the product right so your company yeah. uses your yeah. own your own workers to automate your repetitive work. So it seems like you kind of have like the superpower. Um, how does it feel to have this kind of creative power of being able to have all of understanding what you need to delegate um, and then just being able to delegate it? Yeah. So, um, so remember that step function I told you about. I went through mm-hmm. a similar step, step function. So Francis by himself was only able to get one X done. And then Keats is the name of my bot. Uh, when I started using Keats, it was incredible. Like my productivity multiplied, mm. like 3x. Um, but then it plateaued again. Mm. And that was very frustrating to me because I wanted 
an infinite delegation resource that provides like like you know much more than three x leverage. Yeah. Um, so I ended up hiring, ironically, an executive assistant named Amy. Um, and Amy had worked for you know she she was an entrepreneur and then ran a sales team and then she'd spent ten years um, as the chief of staff of a major angel investor who then retired and then she read about Invisible and, and applied to work here. And she's very good. Um, and so now in, Amy's like an Iron Man suit for me and then Invisible is like an Iron Man suit for Amy. So I'm expecting mm -hmm. more from Amy than I would out of any normal assistant. And um, we're, we are already able to provide uh, Amy level service to our clients through our strategist line, which is more expensive than our process line. Mm -hmm. um, but basically like Amy's doing things um, so I don't have time to micromanage Invisible. I don't have time to design some certain systems for myself that I, I need. So, for example, um, I was too busy uh, um, to set up Asana the way I really should set it up and to make sure that um, I was too busy to um, create a list of every delegation I've made to my um, team leaders and to hold them accountable. So I'd often delegate and then I would just trust them to get it done. But then actually, of course, you know, they would drop the ball. So I really should have built a system uh, with an accountability list, accountability list to make sure that I followed sure up with every single thing that I delegate. You know, the classic management rule, inspect what you expect. Um, so Amy started building these systems one after another. Um, and now Invisible runs the systems after she built them. Um, but Amy's doing the design work of talking to me, listening to me, thinking about what I need, building that, and then mm. making sure that making sure that Invisible is running that well. And it's it's an amazing setup. So pretty soon on the website we're gonna we're gonna release a bunch of videos where Amy shows all the things that Francis has got running for his life. And you'll be able to basically buy that. You're like, I want Francis to set up and we'll break it down for you. This is what it this is what it costs. You know, it costs this many process hours, this many specialist hours, this many strategist hours, et cetera. And you can buy the Francis setup. Now we're working on doing this for every single person at the company. So Aaron, who runs HR, um, you know, she's got a bunch of processes that other people who run HR probably need. Um, Dilip, who runs hiring, um, has a bunch of processes that almost every recruiter in-house recruiter and hiring manager would need. Um, so we're trying to make the firm a simulacrum of the economy, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Make it so that every single role in Invisible is archetypal. And we're going to try to do solution selling on the website where it's like, look, you can buy, you know, buy the Corey package and learn how to be a performance marketer. And these are all the things we've got set up. These are all the apps you use, et cetera. And you can literally get that exact implementation. Yeah. And that was the main problem that I was having using your service was the just kind of open ended nature of of what I could do with the platform, but having uh, option anxiety because there's so much to do and it wasn't like clear what what you guys could do really well. And that's a really good way of, of and I wanted to look into the company and see see those types of things. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. We, we built we built a very open ended, powerful platform, which, as you point out, it, you know, excludes everyone but extreme power users who want to see what it can do. Um, yeah. So over time, you have to learn from those power users and build build these like templates and configurations and set up so that people can just say, "I want that." 
So I've got I've got two ways we can take this. Uh, one is into remote work and the specific uh, stresses that are involved in remote work, and the other one is kind of corollary, but essentially you've got this distributed workforce all around the world of people who used to be on overwork and all of these other kind of outs mm -hmm. outsourcing platforms. And I want to talk, I want to dig more deeply into how you built that, the interesting of cultural complexity of, of, of kind of managing these teams of, of high achievers who uh, uh, all over the world and, and that, which, which way do you want to take it? Uh, we can talk about both of those things briefly. I'm also interested in talking about the more abstract relationship between creativity and stress um, and then how that how I've dealt with both creativity and stress mm -hmm. um, Let's as go there. an entrepreneur. Um, but we can hit those two things you mentioned briefly. So the first one was um, around uh, remote work, and the second yep. one is about our, our labor network. Yep. Okay, so um, remote work uh, is really difficult. Um, so there's... So first of all, so Invisible is a completely distributed company. We have nearly 100 people in 16 countries around the world. Um, if I walked into an office every day with 100 people in it, it would be such a visceral experience. I would feel like Invisible was real. Most days I wonder if my company is real. <laughs> um, it's like uh, imposter syndrome. Like you, it just, it's, it's, um, you know how money is just a bunch of digits in your bank account, sort of yep. like an abstract concept. But money is even more tangible because you can you know, go to an ATM and pull it out or you can turn it into, into stuff all the time. Um, with Invisible, it's only real to me that we have 100 people at the company when I talk to, when I, you know, we do it like a partner all hands meeting and there's like our nearly 30 partners on there. That's like, whoa, a lot of people. Um, and, uh, or if I get on an agent all hands, which I do much less regularly, it's like, oh my gosh, there's like 70 agents in this call. Wow. Um, those are moments when it becomes real to me and it's sort of eye popping, but, um, it's, um, uh, it, it mostly feels like playing chess, like four dimensional mm -hmm. chess in my head. Um, so I have to, you know, I, we do this all the time all the time so most people hold an org chart in their head right mm -hmm. like um if you go to most companies there's not one huge wall of the company taken up with like a giant org chart that shows who's at the top and who who are, who are the team leaders and who are the sub team leaders etc like maybe that those org charts exist in spreadsheets or they exist in programs like organemi or whatever that are designed to display org charts but most people actually hold org charts in their head, right? They can, mm -hmm. with their eyes closed, they kind of know who does what, what the setup is, right? Yeah. Right. So in the same way, I hold the org chart in my head. I also hold the business model in my head. And I hold the strategy in my head. And I hold the vision in my head. And I hold the, um, uh, the hiring list that we need to fill in my head. And I hold... Um, our OKRs for this quarter in my head and I hold our biggest problems in my head and I hold uh, I'm just holding a lot of stuff in my head. <laughs> and um, uh, 
and I'm walking around the streets in New York and I'm going to, I, I don't even, I used to use WeWorks, but I got bored of them. So now I just work from hotel lounges. Like today I'm at Freehand. Um, oftentimes I go to the public hotels, a really nice lounge. Um, and I'll sit there uh, totally alone, but I'll be on phone calls yeah. um, and or answering emails and trying to solve the biggest, most important problems in the company and create as much value as I can. Um, and, and going back to what I said earlier, it's like most of the time I'm in the seeker mode, not warrior mode. So it's most of the time I'm just trying to think like, what is the next major source of leverage? Uh, what is the next big problem that nobody is currently solving at the company uh, that I can solve? Um, and, and it's a very weird experience. Now the question is why on earth did you choose that? Should, would you choose that, right? Yeah. And the answer is economics. It's yeah. so, so advantageous to be able to hire talent anywhere. Um, mm -hmm. So if, you know, if, you're, if you need to hire within three square miles of downtown San Francisco or 10 square miles or 20 square miles, like you're so limited. Like you have a tiny market of talent that is so overcompeted for and you, you can just, no, you know what it costs to hire people. It's like, okay, there's a market rate for an engineer. It's $120,000 a year or whatever it is. Um, and you, it's very hard to compete with that market rate. You might get a 10% discount on the cash if you're, you've got an amazing culture or if an amazing vision uh, mission is aligned um, or you can convince people to take the equity. But, but that just shrinks your market. So like how many people are willing to take a discount on the cash within 10 square miles of San Francisco, well, very mm -hmm. small percentage. And how many, how many people of that already small market of people within 10 square miles of San Francisco care about your problem, care about your mission, care about your, your vision, very mm -hmm. small percentage. So you're making it very hard for yourself. Um, and it, it's a simple way of thinking of it is like, you know, to have a startup team of 10 people for a year in San Francisco, uh, what is that, like a million dollars? Mm -hmm. That's what it costs. Um, you know, that's assuming your company has no op major opex yep. or capex. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just like pure labor costs. That's mm -hmm. that's insane. And this is why people have left San Francisco, mm -hmm. uh, which is a separate comment. I have a whole separate rant about how San Francisco is the city of the future that has no future. Um, but uh, the um, you know, this is more or less true in almost every major metropolitan right now. There's there's a um, a crisis of supply and demand and urbanization going on where um, there's just like it's very very expensive to live in a megacity. Um, and so, but you have you have to know that it's a big world and there are people in literally every country and every city all around the world that may be really talented, really bright, uh, that now have access to education on the internet. Um, that might want to work for you. So we've hired people in random places um, uh, and not so random places, like places like uh, Morocco, uh, places uh, like um, Brazil, um, uh, places like Alabama, mm. Cincinnati, um, Ohio, um, and, and also like cities like Seattle or D.C., um, uh, and we have a, you know, for example, our, our, the head of our development team, Aaron, is in Edinburgh. Um, and these are people we just literally wouldn't have access to 
if we mm. were committed to building headquarters in New York City or headquarters in San Francisco. Um, so the, the economic advantage is enormous. Um, we, we have a very unusual model where we split our, um, our partner pay is based on a split of our, uh, our revenue, uh, mm. our crude revenue. So um, we take 50% of our revenue and then we divide it among the partners. Mm. And these and, partners are, are, the, are the people doing the repetitive work, correct? No, no, no. Those are agents. So agents get paid by the hour. Uh, but part, partners are the ones building the company that actually have equity like me. Got it. Um, and so um, we we designed this model instead of like a standard model where like you just get paid a certain amount of money per year. Like say it's like $70,000 a year or whatever. Um, we designed this model um, because it um, it's the most aligned with the company's interests. And we gave people a lot more equity instead. If we had to hire in San Francisco or New York, nobody would go for it. Very, very, very few people would go for it. Mm -hmm. um, so this has allowed us to do, do what we do. Um, yeah, so that's, that's why you do distributed. It's like it's just an enormous 10x advantage on yeah. talent. On talent, you're much more likely to find genius people in the world that are hyper passionate about what you what you're doing. They're outside of. Of the, it, it seems like there's also another benefit, which most people don't really talk about, which is essentially this whole push inside of the Bay Area towards more open offices, because that's what's supposed to happen, or that's what the culture says is the right thing to happen. But mm -hmm. that is like a work killer for, mo for, for a lot of people, particularly introverts. So I think that and there, I th there are a lot of studies that show that distributed teams have a lot more productivity because they don't have uh, distractions, particularly in companies that uh, value asynchronous com communication, not synchronous communication. Um, yep. Um, I, yeah, there, there are, um, so I'm reading Jack London's, uh, call the wild and white Fang. I finished call the wild. And I'm reading white Fang right now. Um, he wrote these books about like dogs and wolves and whatever. So the hero of this one book is like a wolf and the wolf like really doesn't get along with other dogs or wolves. Like it's very much like a lone wolf. Um, and I, I identify so much with this character. Like I um, almost get claustrophobic uh, when I'm, so my last company had uh, two offices, one in downtown San Francisco, uh, which we had towards the end. And in the beginning of the company, we were out in the Presidio um, of San Francisco, which if you don't know, San Francisco is, is out of the main urban area. Um, and everyone thought it was very weird that we were out of the main out of downtown so far from mm. the action but like mm. i felt i felt like i couldn't breathe in the city i was just like yeah. you know it's just like too many people too just too many distractions i want us to focus and then and then ironically like i spent less and less time working at my desk and more and more time working from coffee shops so mm. i felt like i was like running away from school like playing mm -hmm. hooky except for my own company um yeah. Yeah. like why am i avoiding the office um, mm -hmm. And then later on, when we ended up moving downtown, it was more or less the same thing. I would go to the office every day, and then I'd get sick of it, and I went to work from coffee shops. Um, and I just, entrepreneurship for me is so much about building a sense of freedom. Yep. And, um, and, and I, like, for example, whenever I write, and I do writing on, like, medium.com or whatever, I'm writing a blog post. If somebody's standing over my shoulder, I, I can't, I get writer's block. I literally can't write. Um, there's something about, which is so funny, I'm such a transparent person after I publish, but 
while I'm writing, I, I, I can't. Well, it's like, it's like, it's like that womb, you know, it's like you need the womb, yeah. you need the protected space before you, before you put it out there. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a pretty, um, self-motivated person. Um, and I like the autonomy, um, but mm -hmm. not everyone is like that. And, and a lot of people need the accountability of an office environment and they also need the energy of it. And the collaborative mm -hmm. dynamic is really important. So we've learned from tools like discord. Are you familiar with discord? Nope. Discord is like Slack except for voice. Mm. Um, so it's like a walkie-talkie dynamic where you can, mm. just like, you can just like tap anyone in the company and say like, hey, what's going on? Um, mm. And so we have Discord on while we work so we can get that you know, kinetic interaction that you get in an office, the, mm -hmm. the equivalent of like the shoulder tap. Um, mm. And that has helped us improve our collaboration. Um, so that, that's like a way of compensating for the weakness of remote work. Um, but one of the strengths of remote work is that it gives, it makes you want to build systems by default. So for example, you can't hold people accountable by being their manager and walking around and looking over their shoulder and seeing what they're doing, uh, and seeing how long they're working, etc. So instead you, um, have to measure by results and you have to build metric systems tracking those results. Mm -hmm. And measuring in, uh, uh, out, output as opposed to input. Exactly. And, yeah. yeah. So th th these are some of the things we've learned about remote work. Mm -hmm. So let's let's take it into to your personal stresses and the stresses of your early team um, in creating this this thing. Can you talk more about your story? Sure. Sure. By the way, I'm hearing an echo. I don't know if there's any way to deal with that. Uh, okay. Uh, let me take out my mic and I'll. Is this better? Yes. I, yes. I don't think I can. Oh, no. I can still hear myself. Oh, there it goes. All right. I can't hear myself anymore. We're good. We're good. Well, Perfect. Sanity returns. Um, so this is actually a good segue. Um, when you sent over the list of questions for the podcast, I was sitting in an Equinox, and they were playing that annoying David Guetta song um, with the uh, Titanium. And you know, you know, it's like titanium, like whatever. Can't sing it, but it's it's it was so loud and obnoxious that I couldn't think. I, I literally couldn't think of my answers to your questions. I was just drawing a blank. Um, and um, the it's it's a good example of the environmental nature of creativity, um, how sensitive we are to to our creative environment. Um, and I thought about. I thought about a lot of things. So one thing I thought about was the difference between Amazon and Google. Um, Amazon's culture is built around relentlessness, a relentless pursuit of efficiency, uh, a relentless pursuit of new markets, um, very aggressive, very high stress. Um, uh, and, and Google's working environment, very low stress, very much around the idea that like, um, you know, people, you just need to create the right environment for people where people feel comfortable and relaxed and they'll be able to tap into their most creative um, state. Um, and you know, which one is better? Um, and that, that made me think of that. It made me think of um, the, the Renaissance itself. Um, most people think of the Renaissance as a time of peace. It was actually a time of tumult and, and a lot of warfare, um, a, lot of, um, a lot of 
kingdoms were competing with each other and kingdoms rose and kingdoms fell and uh, there's a, a lot of upheaval, um, upheaval, religious upheaval, cultural upheaval, um, and um, uh, economic upheaval. Lots of lots of dramatic, um, uh, stressful things going on, um, and uh, and also made me think of World War II, how you know the Manhattan Project, uh, which normally would is the kind of thing that might not have happened or would have taken decades. Um, you know, happened in just a few years because uh, everyone was so committed to a goal and there was so much urgency. Uh, another, th another thing that came to mind was um, the, uh, the Apollo project. Um, Kennedy's like, you know, like uh, we're going we're gonna to go to the moon uh, in this decade. And then NASA did it in that decade. Um, there was the pressure and the time commitment and the stress. Um, so anyone who says that stress uh, is bad for creativity is oversimplifying the being too reductionist in their answer. It's clearly not the case that stress and creativity have an inverse relationship. Um, but then personally, I, Francis, feel, um, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. So um, in San Francisco, as you know, there are no fancy events. Like I never ever had to wear even a suit or cocktail attire to something, much less a tuxedo. But here in New York, it's black tie season, and uh, you know I got a multiple tuxedo events in a row, and I look at renting a tuxedo, and it costs like 250 bucks. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's horrible. So instead, I bought a tuxedo, and I went to pick up the tuxedo after it was tailored, and um, they gave me the package, and I took it home, and I'm getting changed, and it, the, the event's coming right up, like eight o'clock, and the event's at 8.30, and it's like 10 minute block, walk away. And I realized, oh no, they didn't give me the shoes and the cufflinks and the bow tie that I paid for that are part of the package. And the, the store is closing in five minutes and there's not time for me to go back there and the event's happening in 30 minutes. And I drew a total blank. I was completely uncreative. I couldn't think of what to do. And my girlfriend um, <laughs> was able to stay sane and creative. And she's like, why don't you call them? And then I called and it didn't work. And she's like, why don't you call another store uh, with the same brand? And I did, and that worked. And they called the other manager at the other store and had that person drive out and deliver the stuff to me. And they made it good and it was amazing. I wouldn't have been able to solve my own problem in the state I was in. I was in a panic. Um, that's, and why was I in a panic? I was in a panic for a number of reasons. Like I paid so much money for the event, so much money for the tuxedo, and it was so close. It's, I, I just totally drew a blank. So it's also not the case that like stress and creativity have a positive correlative relationship. So it's not the case that they have an, an inverse relationship or a positive relationship. Obviously, the, the real truth of the matter is that stress and creativity have a complicated relationship. Um, and, um, and so what is the nature of that? complicated relationship. And um, as I thought about the questions you sent, uh, I, had, I had a few thoughts. And um, these aren't anything like a pretty polished framework, but they're, they're jumping off points for discussion. So um, one thought I had was um, Plato's Aeon. Are you familiar with the concept of Aeon, Stuart? I'm not, no. So, Aeon was for Plato, like the concept of heaven is for Christians. 
um, it was um, the eternal realm of ideas where everything, like a better way of putting it is eternity. And he thought, Plato thought that time and eternity have a special relationship that eternity is trying to manifest itself in time, that the ideas are trying to invade time and they, they whisper to us like muses and they, um, uh, they try to get us to be their agents. So um, like, you know, the, the, the muse of Apple was whispering into the ear of Steve Jobs and getting Steve Jobs to incarnate the ideas. The ideas want bodies in time, but they're actually, they're from another place. They're from eternity. And so it's a very interesting spiritual concept, philosophical concept, that everything already exists. And, you know, a way to think about this is like in Hollywood, right? So, Steve, so George Lucas creates Star Wars. He creates this universe. He creates a world. Um, and now that he's introduced the world, introduced us, introduced us to his world, um, you know, you and I can, in our minds, we can close our, mind, our eyes and, and travel to Coruscant. In our, in, our, in our imagination, I, like, I can, I've spent enough time in the Star Wars universe and George Lucas's world that I can imagine what a Jedi Knight is like. I can imagine a Jedi Knight jumping off of a roof and like, um, you know, uh, entering some weird bar with all these weird aliens and like, um, you know, being hunted by like a droid assassin. I don't know. I can, I can, I can, and I can imagine those scenes. I can generate those scenes. But if I had never watched those movies, I would not have access to that world in my mind. Um, and and this this concept of creativity from the ancient Greeks um, was actually about the idea of building channels um, to eternity. Um, so, for example, um, right now, if I asked you to come up with um, you know uh, ten made up names, you would probably struggle to come up with them. Um, but uh, but like uh, somebody recently asked me to come up with made up names and I actually can do it sort of off the top of my head. Uh, wing to dee, dong to do. Uh, super, super wicked, uh, um, fragilistic, uh, uh, you know, um, spider walker. Like, I don't know, I can just come up with stuff. Like uh, depending on even like the, the, um, uh, the etymology, I can, I can come up with uh, uh, Welsh sounding names, um, like, um, uh, Aylwinder, um, or, um, you know, Latin sounding names like, um, uh, Pentanius or whatever. Like you just, you, you get to this point where I could, I could come up with a hundred names right now because I have this, this channel to built in my, almost like a muscle built to, 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 names um and in in the same way you could build you could build a channel for startup ideas so i did a project called cheeky where i published a startup idea every day for a year and i got all my friends to send me their startup ideas and it got to the point where it went from being very difficult to come up with a startup idea to the point where i'd have like you know 10 startup ideas a day um i built that that creative channel um so uh i'll wrap up in just a second here by just you know uh, combining this idea of creativity with the previous story about stress. Um, I think a lot of creativity, you know, you'd think that you're in your most creative state when you're at the top of the mountain and you can just access your channel to the great beyond. You can, you can connect with eternity. Um, 
but actually so much of creativity comes from like dealing with real problems in context in the world. Um, so I think the real skill, the Jedi skill, is to access serenity in a moment of chaos. Um, so, uh, you know, in that, that moment with the tuxedo, I couldn't, I literally couldn't think. Um, I couldn't access serenity. But the, the real skill, the real creative skill is to be able to um, access serenity in, in the middle of um, a stressful environment. Uh, and that is like a great, great master skill of creative people. Um, I'll, I'll stop with that thought, but that's like an example. That, that's one of the thoughts that I had. About and that, brings up two things, that brings up two things, uh, which, which I was thinking about while you're talking. First is when we're doing yoga or no, when we're exercising, the time that people get injured is when their uh, joints reach something called a yield point. So when the muscle is tight and contracted, that is when the muscle is most likely to be um, muscle and tendon complex or most likely to be damaged is at this yield point, the point at which they cannot take any more stress or deformation uh, or load uh, and it and it injures itself. Uh, and so essentially each of us have a yield point. And then that brings to the other point, which is, which you mentioned is which is relationships. Other human beings can essentially help us. And that's what you've done is you've built a network of human beings that can 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 um, help figure out, help us figure out what's going on in these stress points and finding that sort of objective um, viewpoint from another being, I think is important. I love it. I love that. That's a great reference. Yield point. Yeah. Yep. That's it. Yeah. Yep. And so which we I about- guess, you know, takes you, takes you to the concept of balance, you know, balance being an important thing. Um, you know, you, uh, you need some, some amount of stress, um, uh, some amount of stimulation, uh, but not too much. Um, maybe that's conventional wisdom. Um, then, I, I mean, wonder if then, there's like. But then you dig into it. What does balance mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like there is no there is no answer to that question uh, unless it's a personal answer. Because for, for me, for example, I'll be honest. I've I've had a lot of uh, traumatic stress in my in my in my younger years, and so there, uh, uh, I am always under a, a, a essentially low level stress. Um, it's always, it's always present. And so for me, balance is finding things that are joyful to do um, that kind of help heal that, that uh, those stressors and allow me to kind of see that life is actually can be a very joyous process. Um, but I, I can't just do no stress whatsoever. So it's, it's about finding this kind of uh, Goldilocks uh, position, uh, Goldilocks, uh, where, where I found the right stressors to get me to do the things that I need to do. Plus, I've got this, uh, the, these activities that bring me joy in life. And sometimes they're, they're the same. So like dancing, for example, is something, partner dancing, that brings me a lot of stress uh, because it's very difficult to lead somebody when you've never done it, um, uh, it particularly in dancing in a rhythmic fashion. Uh, but then uh, um, it's also very joyful as well because there's this human connection and all this different stuff. So Good. Yeah. Um, very good. I my I had further thoughts on the question that are that are also still abstract, and maybe I can get them away because I think you know I, I can hit a couple of them really quickly, and then we can talk about you know personal experience mm-hmm. um, because I think that's that's probably the most relevant to speak from experience. But I like playing I like playing in the realm of theory too. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know there are different many different kinds of creativity. In the same way, there's different kinds of science. Like there's biology, there's chemistry, there's psychology, there's very, very different fields. 
Um, and um, and so there's there's an asymmetry between creativity and execution. So in in one hour, I can come up with more ideas, more startup ideas than I could execute in a lifetime. Um, and that is that's an example of the extreme asymmetry. Um, so you know, um, one creative person could keep a hundred non-creative people busy. Um, you know, something like that. Um, and and a lot of the uh, so, so the question is you know whether creativity is uh, also it's very hard to to market uh, or sell creativity or or or, um, or to turn creativity into into money. Um, uh, it's um, uh, first of all it's, it's by its nature it's fuzzy so it's not a commodity um, and um, and it's uh, it, it, it's it's always hard to 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 couple it with execution because people who already have who already have resources. Um, time and money and, and labor um, uh, are having them execute on their own problems. Um, so a lot of creativity comes about in very micro ways. So, um, you know, suppose you and I were building a bridge um, and, uh, you know, the architects already had designed the bridge and the engineers already had the specs and you and I were just like contractors on the bridge, like welding things and moving things around. Um, does creativity exist even for us? And the answer is that, like, yes, there's like all sorts of really micro things. So um, when all the materials arrive at the um, uh, at the dock, uh, and we have to sort the materials so that they're easy to access and find. When we need uh, um, a crowbar, we can get a crowbar. When we need, um, you know, a steel grating, we can get a steel grating. When we need, you know, we 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 end up doing this like sorting task of organizing it and deciding you know say you you're the foreman you decide this goes here this goes there uh and then the next day you know you realize hang on we need to come up with some provision in case it rains and then we come up with something you know like a tarp or something um i, I i'm just literally coming up with this example off the top of my head it may not be a good example but there's there is micro creativity in almost all work um and uh, it, it's highly related to the work itself. So it's not the kind of creativity you could access on a mountaintop. It's only the kind of creativity that somebody who's deeply immersed can tap into. Um, and, uh, and there's also recombinatorial creativity where, um, you know, this is where uh, people like VCs who, who see so many hundreds of startups, they build pattern recognition uh, or, or people who are deeply immersed in a genre of music um, will see, will have a kind of gestalt, um, a, um, a way of like seeing um, connections that other people can't see, um, uh, you know, hearing the music between the notes, if you will. And, um, and they're feeding this like vast computer in their mind that is capable of, uh, of, of achieving these gestalts. Um, so, um, you know, if you think about the, the some of the classic creative archetypes, like um, the painter. So you have the painter, you have the canvas, you have the the, the painting supplies, the paints, um, the brushes, um, and you start with a simple stroke, and then that's your first painting. It's just that one stroke, and then the next painting is two strokes, and then three strokes, or a stroke with a different color. Suppose you do a, a series of like 20 paintings that are all just one stroke, one with each color. And then you could do another 20 paintings with like 
combination colors. And you could do these. You could do a whole exhibit of just like called one stroke. And this is my first exhibit. And it's like all the different kinds of ways you can recombine these tools and these paints and just do one stroke on the page, the same stroke. Um, you know, uh, the, the painter's discipline yields itself to um, building a channel with Aeon much, much more easily than, um, than the average person's job um, because you don't have to coordinate with anyone else um, and you just have to think of new ways of approaching a canvas. As long as you can, as long as you can approach that canvas and do a different thing with it this time than you did with it last time, you're being creative. Um, uh, but then the, um, you know, the, the incredible thing about a canvas is that it's a literally an infinite space of possibilities. Um, so uh, you could spend an entire lifetime approaching the canvas and doing new things every time and still not have exhausted the potential of the canvas. Um, because the canvas is like an infinite space. So I think when we see great creative works and we call them art or we call them acts of genius as opposed to just like, okay, here's an artist who did like 20 pieces that were all called one stroke. Um, you know, it's, it's that um, very special connection with Aeon. It's that very special uh, gestalt, uh, that insight, that... Um, you know, bringing of all of yourself to the work uh, that allows you to, uh, it's, 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 it's spiritual, something like using the force. And I think, you know, using the force from Star Wars, like the painter is like using the force to paint. It's like, I, I do not even understand why I have this, why I'm in this flow, why I'm fascinated by this subject, why I'm painting this scene, but I am, and here it is. Like, how did you come up with that? Um, Most people when they're most people, when they get asked that question, who create these great works of art, have no answer to that question. Where did you come up with this? Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, we, uh, a lot of people notice that I use a lot of spiritual language and they don't know what to do with it. And um, I think, I think I could, I could explain almost anything I explain spiritually in literal language. Um, it just, you end up realizing how inadequate the literal language is. So, um, you know, uh, literally speaking, um, you know, the what's going on in the mind is that you're 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 taking all these data points and you're um, you're combining them and you're you're thinking about what would be most attractive. Um, or whatever, you know, it's like, you, it's like you can reduce it to some sort of Darwinian biological process. Um, but, uh, it's, um, uh, it's so, it's so much more complex than, than any, than 21st century biology can explain. Well, um, for example, I'll give you an example on that point. Uh, for the last 120 years, we've believed that the neuron is the seat of the brain. So the neuron connecting to the nerves is the seat of the brain, but now there's, and that, but neurons only make up 20% of the brain. The other 80% of the brain is made up by something called glial, glial cells, such as astrocytes. Uh, and these, um, these parts of the brain used to be considered uh, as junk or trash, uh, 
but we're actually finding out that they have incredible importance for cleaning the neurons, for making the neurons connect with each other, um, all these different things. But, uh, but for the last hundred years, everybody has thought that neuron is the seat of consciousness, but neuron is not actually the seat of consciousness. The astrocytes and all these other glial cells are actually have a very important role to play, but we don't know what the role is, but the, what, but due to the, nature of human beings and the, and this creative nature of human beings and want to be recognized for their creative thing. We all come up with these hypotheses that we then get emotionally attached to and start to, um, start to convince everyone else that this is the seat of the, this is, this is what's happening. Um, but then in reality, we don't really know. We don't, we don't, nobody really knows where the seat of consciousness is. Nobody, nobody has that, uh, information in their hand. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I, I don't know where I was going with that, but. It's all very, it's very good. Um, it reminds me of Freud, uh, Freud's concept of the superego. So, you know, Freud felt that everything was explainable by our, our drive to power and to sex. Um, you know, power leads to aggression and, and, you know, sex is self-explanatory. Um, but then he, he realized that like, um, we sublimate, uh, to exist in society. Uh, you know, it would just be chaotic if we, if we were just un, unexpressed, you know, just expressing, the, those desires blatantly so we sublimate those desires and we put them into other things so the painter who's painting all these great works of art is painting them because he wants power and sex but because society rewards him with power and sex for great painting um mm -hmm. and and so he developed he develops this thing called the superego according to freud which is like uh, and any real psychologist will will critique me for my explanation of freud but this is how i understand it um you know it's like a sublimated version of these lower drives uh, but then you end up the weird example of like the monk who arguably, you know, uh, who's who's celibate and you could argue, the Freudian would have to argue something like, yes, his desire for power and sex is, and combined with his belief, the beliefs about morality in heaven um, uh, uh, make him seek power and sex through being celibate. Uh, because that's that's like you know the way he'll he'll in his reward centers in his brain like get the most reward <laughs> it's something weird like that so so whenever you have a theory literally invert back on itself um you you realize that it's just it's just uh it's deeply problematic and reductionist it doesn't really explain the mystery of what's going on and so the the example of love you know love is a romantic concept a poetic concept um uh is is something very very hard for Darwinian biology to explain it's an epiphenomenon at best um, but you can't really reduce it down to the basic elements of sex um, uh, it, it's it's so much more complex than that and it's mysterious and, and so we use spiritual language to describe it um, and I think creativity is very similar like you cannot it, it is such a complex miracle uh, it is so mysterious um, that no matter how much science improves, certainly in the 21st century, you know, you always wonder if like the 23rd or 24th century will eventually have figured out creativity, but um, uh, it, it's definitely in that realm of the mysterious. And um, I think somebody who understood this really well was the uh, uh, philosopher Heidegger. Um, and Heidegger uh, wrote a book called What is Called Thinking? And he um, uh, imagined imagine creative space being like a landscape that you can walk around in and there's mountains and trees and forests and rivers. Um, and you're exploring that landscape and you can, you can keep going as much as you want in any direction. Um, so like 
a couple of the most powerful tools for creativity ever invented are writing and conversation, dialectic. So you and I are engaging in a very powerful tool for creativity. I wouldn't have even spoken these words that I've spoken today or had these thoughts if you hadn't invited me here to have this conversation with you and ask me those questions. Um, and so, um, like, conversation, dialectic, inquiry is a very powerful, like the question and answer, question and answer, question and answer. It's such a powerful way to move you through creative territory, to like keep you moving in directions and exploring more and more and more of the, this infinite landscape. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and, uh, and so, is, so is writing. Like literally, like you, can, you can't hold enough in your head um, so when you write, uh, it's like you extend your memory into infinity because you can keep writing and writing and writing and writing and writing and writing and writing and, writing and you're like, suddenly you're shocked at how far you've come. And you also realize that your written works represent a much larger brain than your actual brain. Like you've thought more thoughts that you've forgotten than you're currently thinking now. Um, Not only thoughts that are in your head because of other people, the relationship between your brain and the other brains. Yeah, so this is why even a very scientific, atheistic person who doesn't really believe in the value of spiritual concepts can start to appreciate something like Plato's concept of Aeon. You know, it's the idea that like all the, all the thoughts already exist, you know, and it's just, we are just mapping this infinite territory when we write and when we speak, we're, we're connecting with these things that are just so much more than we can really hold, but we're bringing them down, um, yeah. So let's let's take it to you personally. You've written a lot about how your company is a product of the values that you have. For example, romanticism. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you also talk about this kind of you posted on Facebook about uh, essentially uh, um, making sure that you're always open and that you're committing su social suicide um, yeah. every. Uh, so the question that I have is, have you, have, has any of the goals that you've ever had have, and when you've actually achieved those goals, have you felt fulfilled or is it this kind of, is it this always, once you've reached this goal, is there always a new goal that kind of keeps you going? What is the relationship between fulfillment? Um, and, 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 and actually like when you're thinking mind to this, I want that, I want to create a company with 150 employees. Um, once you're there, has that ever fulfilled you? So currently my number one business goal is to get my company to profitability, um, in 2019. And one of the reasons why that's so important to me is I want to wake up in the morning and know that we have more companies or more money in the bank today than we did yesterday. Um, uh, that, um, the thing that I care about isn't slowly dying. Uh, and it's so, I mean, going back to your, you know, your prompt about the relationship between creativity and stress it is, it is stressful to the point of making me uncreative that like my company is, is dying every day because we only have a year one way. Um, and so I try to extend that runway every, you know, through, through making the company more profitable, um, because I really enjoy what I do and I want to be able to do it, uh, forever. Um, I want the company to continue to grow and for me to continue to build it. Uh, but the only way to do that is to make the thing profitable. Um, so I think that that, 
that particular goal um, will be uh, will actually make you know achieving that goal will actually make my life meaningfully better. Um, in the same way that like you know people say that um, uh, you know money doesn't create happiness and it doesn't, but it certainly helps. Like yeah. it um it really really is hard to be happy when you uh, are um, we literally have no money and you're trying to survive. So a lot of my entrepreneurial journey, um, I've been uh, pretty close to penniless um, or scraping by where, you know, it's like um, in my first company, we were raising uh, money one check at a time um, and it ultimately failed. And then, um, you know, after it failed, I bootstrapped Cheeky. Um, and, and then after that, I, I raised money for Invisible. Then it was a rocket ship and it crashed. We bootstrapped for another year. And then I raised money again and worked really, really hard and had some resources, but really wasn't paying myself much. And we ended up raising more. And, um, you know, it's basically I've spent my 20s as a broke entrepreneur, hustling really, really hard, working really, really hard and not with, with not a lot of time to enjoy life. Um, and um, and so for me, um this goal of profitability is like, I think actually make me very, very, very happy. Um, different goals, like I really want to uh, raise a seed round was like my goal and I did it. And I'm, I'm very, I'm still like, the fact that I achieved that goal contributes to my daily happiness in a very, very meaningful way. Um, but it also creates a new stress because that fundraising round now means that we have a lot of pressure to raise our Series A and to achieve a whole new set of metrics. So like my job just got harder too. Um, so I think, I think that the, um, the chasing of goals is not really the, um, uh, how do I put it? Um, the, the thing that makes me fulfilled is actually my, 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 um, my romantic relationship. Um, mm -hmm with my girlfriend. Um, and that, uh, that fills me with a sense of joy. Um, one of the reasons why, um, she, she balances me so well is that, um, I've become so part, part, as part of the results of stress over many years, I've become so Spartan, so disciplined, I'm just like execute, you know, uh, tasks all the time. And I'm just like trying to be hyper productive and I'm always checking the clock. Time is it, how much did I get done, et cetera. Um, and then when I'm with her, I can enjoy a cup of coffee, a walk in the park, and slow down and be drawn into the present. And somehow the stress you know, leaves me and I feel like I'm, there's nowhere I'd rather be. Um, and uh, it's amazing how that, that creates joy. And the feeling I get when I work and when I'm in a creative state is very different than the feeling of joy. Um, uh, when when I'm in my most creative state, I, I also don't feel stressed very much. I, I just, I'm in a flow state. Um, and uh, the, the feeling I get is one of expressing myself or expressing my potential or, you know, um, making myself useful and valuable. Um, and, um, and so, um, you know, the... Um, the goals I have are really goals to just like um, uh, allow me to keep 
keep being in this position of thriving where, you know, like the goal of profitability is a great example. If, if the company is profitable, I can keep thriving creatively. I can, I can, I have the, 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 um, the space to keep entering that flow state and being productive and building. Um, and I also have the space to keep reinvesting in my personal joy as well. Um, yeah. Uh, sure. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, it's, that's, that's, um, yeah, I'm not looking for direct answers, but I'm looking for that, what you talked about earlier about this conversation leading to new creative, um, places. Uh, yeah. And, um, and that's, so you mentioned something in the flow state, the question of joy doesn't even come up because you're out of the default network, the default mode network, which is the mode that we start to start to use when we start to th think about ourselves in relationship to reality in a flow state, that part of our brain gets shut off basically. And we're t so deeply immersed in what we're doing that that doesn't even come into a question. Um, so what is the relationship between that flow state and stress? Because from what I've understood, it does require the right amount of stress basically to put you in, you need to be operating at a level that's just hard enough uh, so that you enter the flow state. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. Um... So when I was a little boy, I used to play Legos and play with blocks as well. So um, I, uh, I would make these castles and um, it was so fun. I would just, I could just spend hours and hours and hours and hours in my room uh, building, building forts out of my bunk bed with like blankets and whatever. And then inside of my giant fort, I would build castles. And, <laughs> um, and uh, when I'm happiest at work, I feel like that. Um, and what my work has felt like over the last 10 years is like that, except somebody's got a gun to my head. <laughs> and my major goal is to remove the gun <laughs> so that I can play in peace. Um, and, and, uh, um, yeah, I think that like, I'm the kind of person that I create enough natural stress for myself. Like I always, I already want to like make everything better and more awesome and bigger and whatever that, um, but the, uh, the thing to design for in designing my life is, is the, um, uh, the elimination of existential risk. So, um, profitability is like the best single metric for, my happy my business happiness because if the company's profitable i can I, I can go back to being that little boy and playing with legos um <laughs> sounds ridiculous but uh comes to my mind well and that, and that that reminds me that that the flow state seems to, as kids because we don't have this default mode network until we're about eight years old um i mean it's growing before then but it's not in place until we're eight years old uh we're pretty much permanently in a flow state uh, which is really interesting. Um, that's cool. Yes. Yeah. I love that. I love that default node network. That's interesting. Really interesting. Um, it, I also, I know you do a lot of reading to inspire you. I do too. And um, I like asking people the question, what's the most, um, uh, what's, what's, what's the biggest, idea you've had in business that came from a non-business source. So um, uh, like 
I read a lot of books that don't have any explicit relationship to what I do. Um, uh, like I read Herman Hesse's Steppenwolf recently, and I, um, before that I read Shantaram. Now I've been reading all these books that are not mm. business books, um, but they, you know, wh why do they feel so important to me? Uh, why do they give me such strength and energy? I don't know. Um, do you know? Yeah, well, so I spend most of my waking hours for the past couple of years figuring out how to take something that most people don't believe belongs in business, uh, which is yoga and meditation, uh, and applying it to the two books. I've read recently that helps me realize that is about what's called childhood adverse experience, adverse childhood experiences, trauma. Uh, I've been reading books about trauma, and essentially 26% of all individuals have had at least, or no, of, I'm sorry, middle class white white people. So what what originally what not not people who are low income, but like middle class white people, 26% of them have what's called an adverse childhood experience. So something that uh, uh, really changed the way that they operate um, and uh, changes the way they view reality. Uh, and that if you're like, if you have one ch adverse childhood um, experience, you're 80% more likely to. Uh, and the more that you have them, the lower your objective health records go. So it's a dose dependent relationship. So the more, um, and so basically what I'm saying is that everybody has either had one of these or is knows someone with them. Uh, and so that's the, it, so what that makes me realize is that pretty much one fourth of the population doesn't see reality as it is. I mean, all of us don't really see reality as it is because uh, uh, reality is our, our, our whole evolutionary uh, thing is, is meant to see collective consciousness as reality rather than reality itself. Uh, and so uh, that's allowed me to kind of realize that yoga and meditation do have a place in business because everybody's in a traumatic or a lot of people have trauma and these things can help us to process trauma, trauma and integrate trauma. Um, I don't know if that answered your question. But. That's really good. Yeah. Um, it uh, it not only answers my question, it begs new questions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> well, um, uh, I I've, I also have been through trauma, and the question is, do these traumatic experiences like make me stronger or weaker? Um, and um, I, I, you know, I think there's here are two two examples of very contradictory, you know, sources in reading. So I read Nietzsche's "Thus Spoke Zarathustra" last year, um, and it, it's a classic work of strength. You know, the argument is like, but not the argument. The um, the energy of the book is to to rise above everything and transcend um, and uh, and not be limited by the thinking of others um, or by uh, other people's definitions of uh, what it is to be human. And then, you know, I also read, um, uh, who, 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 what's the name of the expert on vulnerability? Um, uh, Brene Brown, Brene, okay. Brene Brown's books, books, book on vulnerability. Um, and uh, sort of there's, it's weird, you know. There's there's truth in both books. Like, you know, I I've I'm I've never been more aware of my weakness as 
my traumas, my, my sensitivities. Um, I, I'm almost increasingly aware of my limits. Um, when I was in my early 20s, I felt like limitless. And to some extent, I, I really just didn't know what my weaknesses were. I just felt like I had strengths. Um, I was much more, I was much closer to Nietzsche's idea, you know, the strong, you know, strong man, uh, the Superman. Um, and now I actually feel very much aware of my weaknesses. Um, and, uh, and so there's this question of like, how do you, how do you turn your weaknesses into strengths? Um, and how do you design around them? Um, you know, it's an interesting question around productivity conversation with my girlfriend I had recently where she said, you know, you are an animal and you need to design your schedule around that animal instead of design your, you know, make the animal conform to the schedule. So for example, if you, um, uh, we can make our schedules like these machines that are traps. So we just have to like sort of conform to what we think we're supposed to do instead of realizing that like we are like we have these very pronounced strengths and weaknesses and limits and that we, we need to design around them instead of forcing ourselves to become machines. Yeah. We're not machines, we're animals. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Um, so that, that brings that up, this, this dichotomy you see of, 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 of uh, uh, strength and, and trauma and how that affects us. The people who have made the most impact on this world are severely traumatized people, but they've found a way that to turn that trauma into a strength because what happens in trauma is our nervous system gets set to view everything as a threat so we're under under this constant threat basically but that allows our nervous system to actually perform at a higher level because you can handle stresses that vast majority of people can't really handle um, because you've been trained from birth from very young age to handle stress but the key in doing that is that all of us right now are projecting our thoughts onto reality and calling that reality. Uh, and so we need to, in order to make our traumas work for us, we need to first realize that those traumas happened in the past uh, and then integrate them into our, and then once we've done that, then they turn into powers. That's, that's what I believe on that, on that. I love that. That's great. That's full of wisdom. It's full of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. We've covered a lot, um, and but but really we've covered only part of what we the, tini- the, ti- the tiniest fraction of like a very large space. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Can, would you I, like I really, to close, or do you do you have do you have final final questions? I'm 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 pretty interested in this in this in this network of people all over the world that you've 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 managed to, to build. Um, <laughs> I've, I've, I've traveled a lot. I've lived in a lot of other countries. I speak, I speak a few different languages and I've, I saw when I, when I started to travel this kind of just potential, which segues from what we were just talking about of, of essentially trauma of, of these people in, in developing countries who haven't had enough, who are now, now starting to have enough and are starting to grab onto this. I remember when I was in Bogota, Colombia, I was like 4 a.m. and I was talking to this woman who was serving the food and she was working at 4 a.m. to save so much money so that she could send her son to college in the United States. And I was just oh like, away. holy shit, 
th this this untapped potential that used to exist in the United States before we were a developed country. That's part of why we are developed where we are right now is we have this potential of like, oh my God, we, we've been in poverty. We know what that feels like. And now we're going to go to this next step. And what you're doing is essentially you're organizing those people. Um, and, and, and that, and that seems very powerful. To, uh, can you talk more about that? Yeah. Um, I can. So, uh, once we find one person in a country, that's a great agent for invisible. Uh, normally, their friends, their family, they you know they, they refer people that that are also talented um, that we test, and then if they qualify, they they become agents too. So invisible on the supply side so far has been able to grow entirely organically, um, and seventy percent of the world makes less than ten dollars a day, uh, and um, fifty percent of the world's on the internet now. And internet speeds in these countries have been getting faster and faster. So you can start to do work in real time and do video calls. And English is the lingua franca. Um, so, um, you know, English quality is actually pretty good. It's a very, labor has literally never been this cheap in all of history. Um, and, uh, and I believe that genius exists everywhere. So you know, there, there's the chosen one could be anywhere. You know, uh, I think the next great genius um, could be in Peru in the jungle. You know, we don't know. Um, so uh, the um, uh, it's <laughs> it's amazing to talk to these people. It's humbling in the same way that meeting the, the, the story you told is humbling. These people are um, you know, making a livelihood on the internet. Um, they they have other options like Upwork, um, but the problem with Upwork is Upwork doesn't really create a career path and it doesn't provide training. So you're kind of just stuck at your dollar per hour rate. So if you're able to work at $4 an hour, you know, you're going to make that, but you have to, you know, manage all your client relationships and, and your clients don't have an incentive to train you um, or, uh, or promote you. Uh, as a matter of fact, they have the opposite incentive. They want to minimize their delegation time and um, they don't have the resources to train you, and they, they as soon as you want more money, they'll just go find a cheaper person. Um, whereas for Invisible, because we're able to tier services, we have premium services, we can we can promote agents to do different kinds of work and um, put them on different teams and whatever. So it's, um, it's a great opportunity for them. It's a uh, it's great for us. Um, it's a win 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 all round. Um, I Are wish I had time to, I wish I had time to like literally travel around the world and get to know these people. Um, and someday I will, uh, um, perhaps after we're profitable and we've raised a series A, I'll actually just like, you know, go travel around and get to know them. Um, but you know, a lot of them are literally working from home. They don't have to work from an office, which is really helpful for childcare. Um, so they'll, ch their children will literally be around them while they work. Um, yeah. So cool. All right. Thank you so much, Francis. It's been a really Thanks really so cool much, talk. Stuart. Yeah. yeah. Love it. Love it as always. Yep. See you. Cool. Bye.
Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next hundred years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you.